to regen. Um, I think we have a little, okay, they got a little mic situation figured out. Um, good morning. We're so glad to have you here at Regen. We're passionate about interrupting people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. And so we hope that that's something that you experience um, while you're here this morning. Uh, just a couple of announcements for you. Uh, our next feast is going to be July 8th at 6 p.m. And it's going to be at Alex and Taylor Moss Dollars. I'm looking at Taylor to make sure I'm saying the right information. We'll have their um, address um, in the bulletin next week. And an event will go up on Facebook tomorrow. So you'll be able to see that. Um, it'll just be another summer feast. We're super excited to be able just to hang out and have fun together. Um, and our next one thing is going to be um, our summer camp, Journey On, which is going to be, um, I forgot to write the dates down, so I make sure I tell you the right things. July 24th through the 26th from 6 to 8 p.m. And I will be in the back in the lobby after the service. If you would like to sign up, we're going to need some help um, as team leaders, doing snacks, um, helping with the different tracks. So come and see me after the service. And if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. But we'd love for you to jump in on this and to be a part of serving our kids. Um, and then also our check-ins this month are for Game Changers. So if you do hashtag RegenGives, Game Changers is um, an organization in Warren that helps student athletes succeed um, in all areas of their lives. So um, we just want to do a donation to them. So when you do hashtag Regen Gives on Facebook, that generates a donation for them as well. And then finally, for anybody who is going into sixth grade through 12th grade, so if you have a student that's that age or um, is going into sixth grade, we're going to be starting a student circle this summer. And the first event is going to be a bonfire um, at our house uh, Sunday, uh, June 24th at what time? 7 p.m. And we'll be led by Danny and Kat. So um, if you can catch one of them, you can ask them questions, or you can ask me, and I'll try and tell you what I know um, after the service as well. So I think those are all of our announcements, so I'm going to turn it over to Danny to um, come and pray for our offering. Okay, let's go before the Lord together. <clears throat> Dear Holy Father, we uh, thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can all gather here. Um, Lord, we just uh, give this offering up to you. And I pray that it will remind us who's in charge of our lives, Lord. We give this up as an act to remind others and ourselves uh, that it's not our lives that we're living. It's not our resources that we have, that they're yours, God. And we pray that this will go forth for your purpose, Lord, and you will use it in mighty ways. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, God, you, you are. You're holy. Uh, and that word simply means you are unlike anything else that we can comprehend. Um, you are greater and more loving and more merciful. You are stronger or more powerful than we could ever imagine. And so we are so thankful that you kind of, in Jesus, you make yourself so accessible. That in your otherness, you show us uh, who you are. And so God, help us to know you today. Help us to hear your voice and do what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, I'm going to send kids back with Miss Cat. Sorry, Cat's like, and I'm sitting and now I'm standing. Okay. Um, so there's that. Get myself situated. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 5 this morning. Matthew 5 in our Sermon on the Mount. Um, Steph mentioned a few minutes ago this idea of a student circle. So we're building a community for... Uh, middle and high schoolers, but that's kind of as a larger move 
um, into what we'll be offering this fall. So this fall, we're going to be really inviting and challenging everybody that calls Regen home to not only participate in what's going on in the life of our church on Sunday morning, but also to find a smaller family on mission uh, called a circle. And we're going to have, it looks like, one in Cortland, one in Howland, and one in Champion or Southington, plus our circle for students, uh, which will also be Champion. And our goal is, um, I, I wrote an email a few weeks ago, and I said, if I could wave a magic wand, I wouldn't have you giving, and I'm not even sure I would have you here every week partially because regular committed church attendance nationally is one time a month. So welcome to summer, right? Um, but I would have you in a circle. And uh, circles will have pr- predictable patterns of that up, in, and out stuff that we unpacked back in January, up with the Father, in with each other, out with those who do not yet know. And uh, I'm really passionate about this. We're training circle leaders all summer, and those will spool up in September. So stay tuned on um, that. And I was trying to think if there was something else I was going to say, but I can't remember what it is. Oh, I turned 30. So that changed since I last saw you. And it feels just about the same as 29. Um, And, uh, you know, I I feel like a lot of people are sad when they turn 30 and that's fine. I love it. I I actually said at Grace Campus this morning, I can't wait till I'm 50. Like, no joke. Like, let's just do it. Um, Because partially I already am 50 inside. Um, One of my youth group kids, uh, when we were in Illinois last weekend for one of our youth group kids' weddings, I was reminded that all of my youth group boys called me a brisk 53. And uh, uh, so that's where I'm at. And anybody that's in their 50s is like, why is there brisk? You know, like, uh, but brisk 53. Anyway, so we're in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. We're especially in verses uh, 17 through 20. Um, Excited to be in this. I don't know if you have noticed this about the internet, but there are, largely speaking, two zones or two places. There is the internet, and then there is the Christian internet. Do you know what I'm talking about? And, and here's, here's the difference. The Christian internet is, is political, but there's also like a lot of cats, a lot of Ellen DeGeneres, a lot of soldiers coming home and weeping videos over here. The Christian internet is just a lot of angry people. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, go to like a YouTube, look up any of the songs that we sing regularly in worship on YouTube and scroll down to the comments and see the vast numbers of people crying out that like these songs are heresy, right? Um, It is impossible to go anywhere on the internet and kind of get like an accurate picture, so much so that one of my people of peace, a person that um, I sense God is working in and I'm just in that relationship with them, kind of texted me this article about, I don't remember what, but it was... It was like a white page with only Times New Roman font and like no other links or menus. And I was like instantly concerned, right? Because I was like, this is a weird part of the Christian internet. The Christian internet is an angry place and it got super angry and like exploded uh, a couple weeks ago when a well-known pastor in the South, I won't name his name, publicly said in a sermon on a Sunday morning that it's time for Christians and the church of Jesus, to his words, unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. To unhitch from the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is more likely to cause someone who is skeptical about the faith to walk away than anything else. And as you can imagine, the Christian internet lost it. I mean, 
out of their heads went nuts, which is totally fine because Jesus said they will know you are Christians by your online outrage, right? <laughs> um, freaked out. I mean, just went to 10. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and I don't know about what you know about the Old Testament. I was raised in a church where the Bible was present, but I never really understood it until a few years ago. Um, the Old Testament is those first 39 books of the Old Testament. Hi, Zoe. We were like gone for a week, and I'm like hardcore missing Zoe Byler. Um, uh, those first 39 books of the Old Testament that you kind of start reading in January when you're like, I'm going to read the whole Bible this year. And then you get into like Leviticus numbers, it all starts to fall apart, right? You go in there and there is all sorts of stuff. It is, it has this reputation that kind of goes before it. I mean, there's slavery, there's misogyny, there's bloodshed, there's war, there's sex. It is like the wild, wild west of the Bible or the west world of the Bible, um, and, and many passages seem so contrary to this Jesus that we meet in the New Testament. And here's the thing. This passage that says we might as well unhitch from the Old Testament. If we were being honest with ourselves, we may not entirely disagree. Let's unhitch from the Old Testament. Let's keep the cute parts for our flannel graphs and VeggieTales movies, right? So David and Goliath, like Noah's Ark without all the death, like... Um, <laughs> David, but not when he slept with that chick. Like, all the nice things. And, and, and let's leave the more complicated part. Let's, let's keep Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because we love to argue about creation and evolution on the angry Christian internet. But let's leave the rest of it for the scholars. Let's unhitch and just like, let's just get Jesus. Loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Like joy and like salvation and hope. Um, the only problem with this is that the last thing Jesus wants for us is for us to unhitch him or ourselves from the Old Testament. And this is exactly what Jesus is getting at in this next installment of the Sermon on the Mount, or what we might call Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way to be human in the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God. This is the last thing Jesus wants. And in fact, he says so in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. I'm uber committed. Those Bibles under your seats are the New Living Translation. I'm super committed to them, usually. The translators keep messing up the Sermon on the Mount. So um, I, I want to look at verses 17 through 20 in the English Standard Version. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me read that again. It's, this is a super important text. Do not think, even for a second, don't let it cross your mind that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets, which is like shorthand for the Old Testament, the Bible of Jesus. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot. Uh, some translations say a jot or a tittle, which refers to the smallest letters of the Hebrew alphabet. They're a little bit, they're nothing more than like what looks like a comma or an apostrophe. Not a, an iota or a dot, not a dot or a chittle, a, or a, a jot or a tittle. I feel like there's a possibility of saying a swear word on accident right there. Okay, will not pass away until the law is accomplished. 
The law will not pass away until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes, which could mean like loosens or frees up or chills out, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. So let's look at this contextually, right? So in verses 1 through 12 of the chapter 5, Jesus announces who the kingdom is for. Congratulations if you're mourning. Congratulations if you're poor. Congratulations if you're simple. Congratulations if you're like a weird protester person because the kingdom is for you. If you exist on the fringes of society, the kingdom is for you and therefore it's for everyone. It spoke to the covenant relationship of people in the kingdom. But then in the next little section, which Danny taught on, and evidently did well enough because he's still here, um, Danny, it's that you are salt and light. It speaks to your kingdom responsibility. Here's the agenda for these people who have been included in the kingdom. And now in verses 17 through 20, Jesus wants to speak of his kingdoms, his relationship, his kingdom's relationship, his relationship, our relationship to scripture, which is super important because the kingdom that he is ushering in, this world that is bumping up against our world and spilling over into it, has continuity with the scripture of the Old Testament as it's being practiced in Israel at this time in history, but it is also so wildly different that Jesus needs to kind of build a link there so that we're all on the same page. And he makes a stunning claim, y'all. He says, uh, he, he doesn't look at the blood and the murder and the slavery in the Old Testament and say, you know, that was a little dark. That was a little PG-13. Let's bring it back to some classy Disney G, right? Let's, let's see if we can't get rid of the, the sharper edges. Let's get rid of the blood. Let's do nice, cute, let the children come to me. Let's get all the good stuff I'm offering. He doesn't do that. Instead, he does not unhitch himself from his, he doesn't unhitch himself or his people from either the bad or the good of the New Old Testament. Instead, he says, look at all of that darkness and emptiness. Look at the blood, look at the misogyny, look at the slaughter of entire people's people groups. Look at all of the things that the law demanded in its extensive legal codes. Plot twist, catchphrase, Aaron Jesse, plot twist, every single word of those on those pages is about me. Every phrase, every page, every jot, every tittle is about me. And he says, I give them meaning, and they give me meaning. That's what Jesus means when he says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. That word abolish in Greek means demolish or destroy or render vain or overthrow or subvert. He's not come to subvert the law or the prophets. He's not come to like demolish them. He's not come to take them apart brick by brick. Instead, he says, I have come to fulfill them. It means that Jesus in his person and work, all of those things pointed forward to him. All of those things were about him this entire time. When you go on vacation, what I like about vacation is like everything matters on vacation. So like even the drive to vacation, it feels significant in a way that like other drives don't, right? So we're driving to this wedding on Thursday and it wasn't exactly vacation, but I guess it was because we weren't here and it was fun. And uh, there was an open bar, so I guess, I don't know. And, uh, and, um, and, uh, we're driving there and like the drive feels significant, right? And even if like your car breaks down or somebody gets sick when you're on vacation, it doesn't feel like 
like that feels when you're at home. Like if my car breaks down today, that's a mega inconvenience. I'd be super frustrated. If my car breaks down on vacation, like I'm still frustrated, but on Thanksgiving, there's like a whole story, right? Well, when we were here and the car broke down and ha 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 and da 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 da. This, and, and, and because when we're on vacation, every moment is pregnant with purpose. Every moment is pregnant with meaning. And, and that's what Jesus is kind of saying about the Old Testament, that all this time, all of those stories, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it was all pregnant with purpose because it was all pointing forward to me. The Bible is this one big story with a beginning, middle, and end, which is not the impression that you get in Sunday school growing up. The impression you get in Sunday school growing up is like, here's these old things that teach us about how to be nice people, and then there's Jesus. Here's a story that has an ending and a new story starts, not here is Jesus bringing all of the story and wrapping it up in his person on his own and in himself. And this is why Jesus can look at the Old Testament and say, hey, I'm here to fulfill these things. He can say, they testify about me. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians says that all of God's promises have been fulfilled, there's that word again, in Christ with a resounding yes yes. Go back and read the Gospel of Matthew, and you'll see all of these places where Jesus does something, and Matthew writes, this was so that the scripture could be fulfilled, which says, Jesus, it's like, um, it's like you're doing a puzzle, and there's that last piece, and you plug it in there, and you see the whole picture. That's who Jesus is. There was this Jesus-shaped hole in the history of Israel and God's people, and when he stepped into it, the whole painting made sense. So for those of us who want to nerd out for a minute, come with me on a little journey. And let's talk for a moment about the Law of Moses. Uh, law of Moses, 613 odd stipulations, including things like thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk, thou shalt not plant different kinds of crops next to each other, thou shalt not wear garments of two different fabrics, I think we're all in trouble there. Um, what about this law? Because Jesus seems to contradict what Paul later in the New Testament seems to say. So Paul, writing in the book of Romans and Galatians, talks about things like, sin has no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul says, we are set free from those things. It's as if Paul it sounds, makes it sound like we are unhitched from the law. But what Jesus comes and says is, I've not unhitched you. In fact, I've not come to abolish or destroy or erase any of these laws. I've, in fact, come to fulfill them. And it feels a little contradictory. Now, here's the thing. The Bible only contradicts itself when it wants to. It's unfair to say the Bible never contradicts itself. It does that frequently, but it always does so on purpose. It's, it's trying to draw our attention to a tension or uh, a tricky wicket, if you will. And this might, a sticky wicket, thank you, Joey, who professionally deals with sticky wickets frequently, um, um, which is gross. Um, just sounds like it's moist work. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Um, so Paul's, What's happening here? Are we free from the law 
and thus able to abolish it and forget about it? Or has Christ come not to erase it, but to fulfill it, and therefore am I still under the law? There seems to be some complexity there. Here's what's happening in Romans and Galatians. And feel free to nerd out on this on your own time in the book of Romans, like especially like chapters 3, 4, 5, and like 9, 10, and 11, um, and the whole book of Galatians. It seems that Paul's arguments about the law in Romans and Galatians are an interpretation of and application of Jesus' words in Matthew 5. So we are set free from the curse of the law. We are no longer under the law, but under grace, because, not because Jesus came with like an eraser and erased it, but because Jesus fulfilled them. Because Jesus steps into this place in history and says, all of these things were about me. I have Jesus, in Jesus' person, have, has faithfully kept the law like no other human person can. And so we can kind of fail and fall short and not worry about it because we're not under the law but under grace. This is why Paul says in Romans 10, Romans 10, 3 and 4, they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. He's talking about people that are kind of still trying to live into the old covenant, which is no more. And that's actually going to touch on when we hit this idea of the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes. But look at verse 4. He says, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Other translations say uh, Christ is, is the end of the law. But it's not like the end of the law as in the end of the movie or the end of the road. It's as in the purpose of the law. Christ has fulfilled what the law came to accomplish. Because Christ lives obedient to the law and dies under the law so that we can be set free, we are no longer under the law but under grace. But here's what's interesting that Paul and Jesus both agree on. Uh, Galatians 5.14 For the whole law, Paul says, can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And what does Jesus say? There are two commands. The second greatest is love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, in the new covenant that Jesus has initiated in his person in the scripture by fulfilling the requirements of the old covenant, he has set us free to have basically one law, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says all of the law and the prophets can be summed up in those two commandments. In other words, if you, as a follower of Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you are fulfilling the righteous command of the law, and good news, you're going to screw up. You are. I've lived 30 years and two days on this earth, and never once, never once did I nail it. Not once did I ever nail it. But because Christ has fulfilled the law, I am not just under a curse to be judged against that. Instead, there is forgiveness and there is mercy, new morning mercies for me to get up tomorrow and try again. And and, and this is just important because Jesus is saying not a jot or a tittle will pass away. Not one. And so we look back on these old covenant stipulations and we don't see rules to obey. We see a father's character revealed in those words. We see in this world that God constructs for ancient Israel of purity in clothing and purity of fields that their whole world was to be saturated by the presence of God. We talked about this when we preached the book of Exodus like a million years ago. Their whole world was to be saturated with the presence of God, which is exactly what Jesus is envisioning with this inbreaking kingdom. He is envisioning a world 
and a life that is, that is overflowing with, that is dripping with God's presence as we love the Lord our God with all our hearts, all mind, our strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. He says, not one jot or tittle will pass away. And here it comes, the thing that some of you have been expecting, a quote from John Mark Comer. Aaron said to me last night, I can kind of hear in, your, in my head how you're going to do this. Has it happened? Am I just like predictable now? Is our marriage as pastor and church becoming stale? Is the, is, the, is, the, is, the, is the thrill that was first there gone? Is it done? Is it that quick? Um, John Mark Comer translates this, and, he's, and he says it this way. I think I ha- it's the white ones, Dan. He says, don't think for one minute that I've come to throw out the Bible or even the Old Testament. Nothing could be further from the truth. I came to take the story to its climax. This might surprise you, but it's very true. The Bible, down to its smallest details, the cross of a T or the dot of an I, will never fall from its place of importance and influence. As long as there's a universe, there will be a Bible. I love that. As long as there's a universe, there will be a Bible. Instead, everything the Old Testament points forward to will come to pass. In fact, it's already started through my life and work. So here's my point. God's treatment of you will mirror and mimic your treatment of the Bible. Dan, hold that one up there for me for a minute. As long as there's a universe, there will be a Bible. Here's this misconception you get growing up in church. When we get to heaven, we don't need the Bible anymore. We have a misconception that says, when we get to heaven, we don't need the Bible anymore. Plot twist, when we get to heaven, it'll be all the Bible all the time. Right? There will be secret things also revealed to us, but it's not like we graduate from Scripture. It's that we continue to absorb more and more and see how the story was truer and truer. As long as there's a universe, there will be a Bible, and everything that the Old Testament pointed to is coming to pass in the life of Jesus and still is coming to pass through us, the church, caveat, as long as we're actually being the kind of church Jesus wants us to be. His will does not advance through a club. His will advances through a movement of disciples. We're going to be the latter. Jesus looks at the Old Testament with bloodshed and misogyny and slavery and says, but, and says, without necessarily approving the evil, says that these texts give his life and work meaning, and even more importantly, he gives these texts the meaning that they were always meant to have. I'm going to say that again, which Sarah tells me is also a predictable way. It was kind of a rough birthday revelations yesterday about how I evidently preach in a very predictable way. These texts give the life and work of Jesus meaning, and even more importantly, he gives these texts the meaning they were always meant to have, which is why the last thing we could ever do is unhitch Jesus from the Bible, because when we unhitch Jesus from the Bible, especially the Old Testament, he loses his identity, and so do we. We are no longer the people of Jesus if we jettison the Old Testament, because Jesus ceases to be, Joey knows, Zoe knows, it's freaking her out, um, um, when we, when we unhitch Jesus from the Old Testament, we no longer have Savior and Lord and Messiah. We have this kind of harebrained guy from Nazareth who has some like neat ideas about what the world would be like if we were all nice to one another, which is not what we're called to be. We're called to be something else. And so Jesus says, and I love John Mark Comer's last sentence in this, here's my point. God's treatment of you will mirror your treatment of the Bible. God's treatment of you, you know, Zoe, God's treatment of you will mirror and mimic your treatment of the Bible, which is where we should stop and say, guys, this is an easy sermon, okay? There's an e- there's a- this is easy. Here's how we act on Kyle's sermon, June 17th. Happy Father's Day. That's the thing I was going to say. Happy Father's Day. Um, 
if it's not too late to call your dad today. Deal? Okay. Um, this is an easy sermon. This is an easy thing to kind of act on. Here's how you do that. Probably start by reading the book, right? Which Aaron said like a month ago in his sermon on speaking the truth in love. If you want to know the truth, you should probably be reading the book. Um, invest in this book. And it, it, it's hard and it's wild, but we live in an unprecedented era in America where there is more more resources on understanding the Bible than ever before, and we are the most Bible unintelligent people ever. I went to um, Wheaton College for my master's degree, my first one. He said, because he's so hoity-toity. And um, they would, Wheaton is considered like an Ivy League school of Christian universities. And so you're supposedly getting like the cream of the crop from churches everywhere to come and learn whatever their humanities or sciences are. And they would ask incoming freshmen a 10-question uh, like basic Bible knowledge quiz. And it would be certain things like order these events, creation of the world, the exodus, the death of Jesus, the missionary journeys of Paul. Okay, those were, I just said them in order. 80% of students at Wheaton couldn't get that question right. Um, there is no reason, I know, ever, some of us that are like, in, like we're raised in church, we're like, what is wrong with you, right? <laughs> um, like, were, were you listening at all, right? I mean, it was stuff like, who came first, Moses or Jesus? Like, you know, like it's not like master's level questions. Um, the best way to get in this book is an app called Read Scripture. The best way to get in the book is an app called Read Scripture. It comes from the Bible Project. It breaks it up day by day. There's great videos that really show how Jesus is at the center of every story. It's fabulous. It's my go-to. Read Scripture by the Bible Project. That would be a great thing. But let me give you a couple more things to think about. Uh, Jesus says in verses 19 and 20, therefore, whoever relaxes or loosens one of these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. We have sassy Jesus now, okay? Because Jesus is like, if you're least, if you relax the least commandment, you'll be least in the kingdom. Do you see? He just kind of did a little, and then he did this and walked away. Um, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. And entering the kingdom here, by the way, I didn't say this last campus, doesn't have to do with you won't get into heaven. It has to do with you're not going to ever act. That won't even be a concern in your mind because you won't even be experiencing now the kingdom that is breaking in. So he says two things. Let's start with the second one. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're never going to enter the kingdom. You're never going to experience what I'm here to offer. And the first hearers would have heard this and laughed because here's the deal with the scribes and Pharisees. They are the most astringently, down to the very last detail, righteous men that you had ever encountered in your life. They counted the number of steps they took on the Sabbath. I mean, they were obsessive about their keeping of the law, and they were known to be the most righteous people in their communities at this time. And so when Jesus says your righteousness has to be greater than their righteousness, it's almost laughable because how is it possible? How is it possible for me to have a righteousness of a greater degree than the righteousness of the Pharisees unless Jesus is calling me to a righteousness of an entire different kind? And that's what he's doing. Because Jesus isn't saying, let's try to beat the Pharisees at their own game. You walk 100 steps on the Sabbath, I walk 95. You never eat pork. I never eat an animal that's been in the same room as pork, right? Um, you don't eat seafood? Well, yeah, because it's gross, right? All right. Um, and it's not about beating this game. It's about moving beyond an outward surface level obedience 
Uh, one commentator says that it's a call to move beyond literal observance of rules, however good and scriptural, to a new consciousness of what it means to please God. I love this. I love this next line. A consciousness of what it ple- means to please God. One which, one which penetrates beneath the surface level of rules to be obeyed to a more radical openness to knowing and doing the underlying will of your Father in heaven. A radical openness to knowing and doing the underlying will of your Father in heaven. Jesus wants us to experience scripture as more than just the candy coating on your M&M. He wants, he wants, he wants it to be the chocolatey piece, that chocolatey center. Imagine opening a, ba- is everything okay? You're stressing me out. I just thought, I think we're all wondering. Oh, that's all right. We'll figure something out. You guys go, we'll take care of it. All right. God, oh, Zach's got it. Um, Aaron's going to figure it out. Worst case is you strum us through and we take communion and we go home. We love you, Julia. Praying for you. Okay. Jesus, heal her. Okay, what are we talking about? Moving beyond a literal observance of rules to one which penetrates beneath the surface level of rules to be obeyed to a more radical openness to knowing and doing the underlying will of your Father in heaven. He doesn't want us having this experience of just these candy-coated, that's not our lives, and that's what a lot of us do. We, we, we take our life with God, and we kind of just gently coat it in Scripture. So we have like a Bible verse that kind of pops up on our phone once in a while, and we have like a calendar in our house that's like got this eagle soaring above mountains, and it's like, he will make you rise up on wings like eagles. And that's our, that's our scripture intake. It's like, a, it's like a, a, a vitamin, but imagine a world, would you please, imagine a world uh, where you open up your M&Ms and it's just the candy coating and there's nothing inside. First of all, if I think about it too long, it kind of kicks in a gag reflex, personally. And second of all, what we're talking about is we're talking about a candy that cannot bear up under weight, which is just like a person who is not firmly rooted in Scripture. Until we kind of engage in this radical openness to knowing and doing the underlying will of your Father in heaven, until we get to that place, we are crushed by what life throws at us. We're smushed, down, done. The Bible is not a spiritual vitamin that you take in the morning. It is not a footnote for your political leanings. It is not an encyclopedia. It is the script that we root ourselves in so we act on the world stage in a way that is compelling. It is how we embody the way of Jesus. And Jesus goes on to say that anyone who relaxes even the smallest of these commandments will be small in the kingdom. Now, Jesus isn't developing a hierarchy. There's not going to be like this long table. Do you know when you go to a wedding and you're obviously sad at the we don't know what to do with these people table? I officiate weddings all the time. That's where, that's my jam. Like we just sit with the random coworker, the mom's friend, like the, the aunt that nobody likes and like our brother's roommate from college. That's our table. I think that like literally describes one that we were at last summer. Um, there's not, but there's not this hierarchy in the kingdom where those who are greatest sit near the top of the table and those who are least sit near the bottom. He, he's talking about something different. He's saying, that, that, that when, we, when we relax these commandments and become small in, in, his, small in the kingdom, it's to be called great or small in the kingdom of heaven means to be high or low in God's esteem. To be a more or less worthy representative of those who acknowledge him as king. 
Listen, I know a lot of parents who have a number of children that they all love equally. But I also know they hold some of their children in higher esteem than others without favoritism. I had a pastor friend of mine who um, was in his 60s and went to his prayer closet to pray and got down on his knees and he said, Father, my adult children. And before he could say anything else, he heard back from the Lord, tell me about it. Right? To be small in the kingdom is to bear a more sketchy resemblance to our Father. To be great is to be the people that hear these commands and keep them and teach them to do others. To take every word seriously, to consider every jot and diddle. Here's where we're getting down to it. And you're about to get really ticked off at me and our church will probably get smaller, so that's fine. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing this world and this kingdom that is bumping up against and spilling over into our world. It is a world that is entirely foreign to our own. It is a stranger thing. It is the land of the upside down. And the Bible, whether the Old or New Testament, are the guiding foundational documents defining what that kingdom is, what that king is like, and what that kingdom's agenda will be. That means when the Bible is studied and lived, not studied only, studied and lived, don't need smarter sinners, we need people who know how to live out the script. It means that when you study and live the scripture, you are going to live a life for that, for all intents and purposes, that will place your feet on the ceiling. You will be upside down. And this is where I get really unpopular. If you as a person... If you claim the name of Jesus, but you're going to live a life as if the Bible, all of it doesn't matter. It's going to be the M&M coding. It's going to be the fringe around, and you put God at the fringe of your comfortable Republican or Democrat, um, happiness, self-centered, economical life, and God is out here, and your kind of extent of relationship with him is he wants these same things for me too, so he must be blessing those. If you're going to do that, if you're going to use the Bible as like a vitamin, if you're going to relax some of the commandments and gossip and slander and get nasty on Facebook um, as if that doesn't matter, if you're going to relax those things, if you're going to act like it's a vitamin, if you're going to act like the Bible and who Jesus is is nothing more than a hood ornament to your life, that is absolutely fine. Just understand that you are now one of the people that Jesus calls least in the kingdom. And if you're going to bend to the point of breaking the story of scripture and soften it for modern times and contemporary ideals, that's fine. But just remember that Jesus says, if you loosen one of these commandments, you are least in the kingdom. That's fine. The Bible is an upside down document. And scripture and the Bible are meant to be out of sync with our society because they are the guiding documents for a kingdom, not of this world. And while scripture calls us to justice and inclusion and care of the outsider, it is not for the world to, divine, to find such things. It is not for the world to go and find a proof text for whatever decision they're going to make. And yes, that is a direct blow also at Jeff Sessions' comments this week. It is for the Bible as the living and active word of God, as the scepter and rod of King Jesus to define those terms. And if the Bible's agenda seems out of place and out of whack and out of sync with our day, it is not our job to update it. It is not our job uh, to, to bend and break it. It is our job to rediscover what it meant in the first place. And this is exactly what happened in slavery in America. When the Methodist movement got to the States um, John Wesley, uh, coming from England, where slavery had been illegal for decades, hated slavery, but as Methodism spread into America, it spread into the American South, where um, 
where a lot of early Methodists, early Methodist preachers, early Methodist lay leaders owned slaves, and then it spread north, and there was a division there. We got to a point as the United Methodist, as the Methodist Episcopal Church, as we were called back then, that we wouldn't talk about slavery in public gatherings because there would be fist fights on the floor, and like duels, Alexander Hamilton style, and uh, and so. In 1844, the Civil War began in 1860, but in 1844, the, the Methodist Episcopal Church broke north and south over slavery. And those in the south said slavery is condoned by the Bible, and those in the north said absolutely categorically not. The, war, the Civil War, and there's actually a doctoral thesis on this, was not a war of north and south or slave versus free. The Civil War was actually a war of biblical interpretation. It's what is the Bible saying. And it took a ton of lives lost and a ton of bloodshed for us to figure out that, wow, if slavery is so in sync in our culture and the Bible is so out of sync from our culture, we should have probably caught that earlier on and figured out that the Bible wasn't condoning slavery ever and that the slavery and vision in the Bible was nothing like the slavery in the American South. Here's what I'm getting at. What Jesus is saying at its most basic is that we aren't meant to use the Bible. We are meant to be used by the Bible. He is meant to use the Bible, Jesus is. And as king, he is going to do it in a way that is both consistent with his character and always surprising. We aren't meant to use the Bible. The Bible is meant to use us. And the invitation and the challenge of Jesus in this text is to be used, which is exactly why, which is exactly why Moses, all those years before Jesus, holds up the scrolls of Deuteronomy and says, these are not empty words. These are your very life. Let's pray. Um, God, it would be nice if this was easier. It would be nice if this was simpler. It would be nice if this was somehow a little more tangible and easy, but you've called us to something different. And so Jesus, um, help us to hear your voice in these pages and do what you say. Forgive us for those things that we loosen. Help us to hear you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, on the night when Jesus was betrayed he gathered to his closest friends around a Passover meal a meal that they were commanded to eat in the Old Testament and he took the bread that had sat on that table for thousands of years and he said this bread which you and your friends have eaten for decades and centuries this bread is actually my body and it is broken for you and for many. And he said, eat this as often as you do. As often as you eat this Passover meal, eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took a cup, a cup that had been sitting on that table the whole time, a cup that nobody ever touched. And he said, this cup, the cup that's always sat on this table, this cup is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood, which is poured out for you and for many and forgiveness of sins. Drink this as often as you do in remembrance of me, putting me into the story. And so we come to this table to be reminded that we're part of a story that God is telling and he is inviting us to take our places in it. Um, and this is how we do that even in this meal. So we'll invite you forward, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, taste to see the Lord is good. Danny and Stephanie and Sarah, let's do this. Father, pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup that they might become for us the body and blood of Christ that in the eating and drinking of them, we might be 
the body of Christ, uh, redeemed by his blood, poured out in ministry to all the world. Amen. Here, you need this too. We don't want your hands to be gross. Thanks, Sarah. There you go. The, <coughs> the table is open. Forgot momentarily how to use my mic. I love you. I love what God is doing in this place. I love what God is doing in your lives. Uh, so let's walk with him this week. And I love you. We'll see you next time. Sign up for summer camp.